Hello, I'm Julian Bagini and welcome to this latest much delayed microphilosophy podcast. It's just been a busy year, as a click around microphilosophy.net will show. In this edition, I'm discussing whether science is the best, indeed only, guide to life with Alex Rosenberg, author of The Atheist's Guide to Reality, and philosopher of science, Samir Okasha. It's an edited version of an event held at Foyle's Bookshop in Bristol earlier this year, in association with the Bristol Festival of Ideas. Alex, we just begin. Before we get into the meaty stuff, there's an interesting little biographical snippet right at the beginning of this I thought was quite interesting. I'm a philosopher, you said, or if that sounds pretentious, a philosophy professor. I didn't start out to be one. I wanted to study physics because I really wanted to understand the nature of reality. The more I learned, the more I was disappointed with the answers physics provided. They just didn't scratch the itch of curiosity that was keeping me up at night. If I was going to stop the itch, I was faced with two choices, therapy or philosophy. (laughs) With enough psychotherapy, I thought, I might get over worrying about what the nature of reality really was. Psychotherapy was too expensive and philosophical therapy was too interesting. I mean, really, for you, was that it? Was it just that fundamental urge to sort of understand the world? And did it keep you awake at night? Yes, I'm afraid so. When I was in secondary school, I was the kind of kid who roamed the stacks of the library where the science books were, trying to figure out what this relativity and quantum mechanics was, because I somehow thought this was going to put me intellectually at ease and get me to understand where I stood in the firmament and in the universe. And... It just never satisfied, and so I turned to a discipline in which the questions that were bothering me seemed at least to be taken seriously. When I, I must admit, when I saw the title of the book, I, I thought, another one of these atheist books, right? Okay. And what's very interesting is that you actually spend virtually no time at all talking about arguments for the existence of God. Basically, your line is, there is no God. Kind of, of course there isn't. Let's move on. What makes you sort of treat the actual question of God's existence as something that can just be brushed aside? Well, I just stand on the shoulders of giants. A whole series of deep thinkers that go certainly back to David Hume um, that have made it clear that there's no more evidence to believe that there is a God than that there is Santa Claus. If you adopt um, a scientific uh, viewpoint, if you take science seriously, then... Uh, it seems to me that the arguments against God's existence are conclusive. What about all those scientists who are religious believers? It looks like it's a bit more of a contest than you're making out. It's interesting and indicative that among the thousand or so members of the American National Academy of Science, our very best scientists in every discipline, 75% of them openly assert that they're atheists, and four-fifths of the rest announce that they're agnostics. Now, it seems to me that it can't be a matter of accident that 95% of the most distinguished scientists in America, as selected by their peers, are all atheists. One of the things, again, that's very striking at the beginning, we have plenty of people defending science, but they tend to perhaps want to distance themselves from the accusation of being scientistic. Now, being scientistic (coughs) is a term of abuse, which you want to kind of reclaim. I was looking for a label, a positive label, for uh, the views that those atheists who are atheists because of science share. And I thought, well, let's take the word scientistic away from those who use it as a stick to beat us with in the way that gays and lesbians have taken the word queer away 
from those who use that as an, uh, a stick to beat them with. Scientistic is by definition, or scientism, the exaggerated confidence in the findings of science and the unreasonable uh, belief that its methods can answer all questions. Now, I'm ready to endorse that definition of scientism if you remove the word exaggerated and unreasonable. Let's bring Samir in here, whether you agree with that. I mean, let's take one of the sort of definitions of scientism that Alex has in the book. He says it's the conviction that the methods of science are the only reliable ways to secure knowledge of anything. So that's a fairly strong claim. The only reliable ways to secure knowledge of anything. It is indeed a strong claim. And one of the striking features of Alex's book, I think, is the way he really believes that and really sticks to his gun. So, for example, Alex asks the question, well, what's the meaning of life? And comes up with a simple one-line answer. Well, there is none, right? Science has nothing to say about it. And so there is nothing to be said about it. Another controversial thesis that Alex expounds, also in the name of scientism, is the doctrine that there's no difference, no objective difference, between right and wrong. Why does he think that? Because if you look in your physics books, or in any other science books, you find nothing. There, there is no science of morality. It's just a subject on which science doesn't speak. I mean, a point that Alex acknowledges, science is always changing. And in the 17th and 18th centuries, then, people were as adamant then as Alex is today that the science of the day was basically on the right track and that might be, might be improved or tinkered with, but it wasn't fundamentally going to be altered. But then we look back at that science from today's vantage point and it's massively different to what we take the truth of the matter to be. The one thing that, I, that Samir said with which, from which I must dissent is his description that our science is radically different from what science was after 1660, after the Principia. I think that the history of science since Newton is a history of continuity, and there are greater continuities between string theory and general relativity and quantum mechanics uh, and Newtonian mechanics um, than are to be found in any other kind of intellectual understanding in our culture. Yeah, now, you don't, you don't I, think that's a controversial way of putting it? I Alex, think I mean, it's very controversial, especially among historians of science yeah, and philosophers of science. Who will typically tell you a more revolutionary story, again, according to which the whole Newtonian worldview was overturned with the rise of quantum mechanics right. and relativity and, and, theory and at the start of the 20th century. Probably. You want to maintain that there's far more continuity than the orthodox histories of science allow for? No, I think that there's as much continuity as the orthodox history of science has asserted. It's the unorthodox ones which have become popular ever since Kuhn wrote The Structure of Scientific Revolutions in 1962, which underwrite the idea that there are radical conceptual uh, revolutions that have occurred through the history of science since Newton. Your view actually isn't quite as moderate as some here has described it, in the sense that it's not just science, actually, it's physics view. Physics is the thing which fundamentally explains it all. And if it ain't in the physics, it kind of ain't real. I mean, is that an unfair way of putting it? Slightly. There's a chapter of the book called The Physical Facts Fix All the Facts. The argument that I want to advance is not that physics is the only science, but that physics not merely constrains all the other sciences, including chemistry and biology, uh, neuroscience, psychology, uh, the social sciences, but that all of the facts with which they deal are fundamentally physical facts, and ultimately everything uncovered by these other sciences, and to the extent that 
these things are explained by these other sciences must ultimately be reduced to physics. Now, the reductionist thesis is an opportunistic one. It doesn't say the way to go at science is to start at physics and build up from the bottom. The opportunistic thesis of reductionism is all of the sciences are capable of acquiring knowledge for us, and all of the explanations that they provide can be deepened and ultimately grounded in our understanding of, as I say, the fact that the universe is nothing but fermions and bosons. But, but let me just sort of come in and push this point a bit there here, because, I mean, again, take a sentence from your book. As you say, physics can tell us how everything in the universe works, in principle and in practice, better than anything else. Now, that seems to be the strong claim. I mean, so, I mean you must have a view on that. I mean, do you really think that physics could tell us uh, everything about, say, the natural world works better than biology, in principle or in practice. Yeah, I mean, certainly not in practice. I mean, in practice, if you want to explain some biological phenomenon, you would be better off asking a biologist than a physicist. But what about in theory? Because this is, I mean, this, this reductionist view is that that's just because of the limitations of our ability to do the computations, basically, isn't it? Right. And that in principle, and eventually, as science gets developed, that will be the best way to understand it. It will all flow from the fermions and bosons, and that will ultimately explain, you know, everything. Yeah, I think of that as an article of faith, not something that anyone really has a good reason to think. And I, th and I think it's a matter of inductive generalization from the fantastic successes of large swaths of physics and chemistry. The great successes of physics, of molecular biology, of the periodic table of the elements and its undergirding biatomic theory, show that the most general and the most precise explanations that we have are those of physics, and that to the degree that we can link up, provide the, the foundations for explanations in the other sciences that go as deep as the physics of the processes, those explanations are the most precise and the most predictively powerful and most probably closest to the truth. But if you think of a science, say, at the other end of the scale from physics, some, say some social science, for example, if you think of sociology or of economics or perhaps even of ecology, I mean, if it was genuinely possible to gain some illumination into, say, how societies work or how economies function or how ecosystems work by studying physical principles, then that would be one thing. But I take it that the apparent autonomy of the sciences that we see is a real phenomenon and seems to, to me, sits uneasily with your emphasis on, on reduction and... The, and the fact and the claim that physics is ultimately all there is. So recall, I didn't say that the way to proceed in the acquisition of scientific knowledge is to start at the bottom and construct the world from the basis of fermions and bosons. Funnily enough, straight after reading your book, I read Michael Gazzaniga's latest book, which is about neuroscientist stuff, and he was very keen there to talk about emergent systems. Now, let's have a little definition of emergence here. I need my crib notes for this. So here... We this, all need crib notes for emergence. Absolutely, emergence. <laughs> let's take what is consciousness. Now, it, people don't deny that consciousness is ultimately entirely a product of physical particles binging around in heads. So there's nothing mysterious in terms of spirit stuff or soul stuff going on, but it arises somehow out of this interaction of atoms in some broad level. But that new property of consciousness is irreducible, meaning it's more than the sum of its parts. And because of the amplification of random events, 
The laws, the laws which govern things at the higher level of organisation, consciousness, biology rather than physics, cannot be predicted by an underlying fundamental theory or from an understanding of the laws at another level of organisation. So the, the emergence thesis is that there are certain levels of organisation we see in nature which say sit, they sit on the physics in a sense, but having emerged out of it, you, you could never, even in principle, predict the way they'd behave simply by knowing the physics. So what's interesting is if, uh. you, if you read Locke carefully, you'll find a paragraph in the uh, second uh, treatise in which he says, the wetness of water is a fact about it which is emergent from its corpuscular uh, makeup, and we will never understand the wetness of water. And of course, well, 100, 200 years thereafter, we had a perfectly uh, complete understanding of the wetness of water and throughout the whole history of science, uh, philosophers especially, but some scientists with special pleadings for the autonomies of their science have drawn lines in the sand and dared physics or chemistry to walk across them. Kant famously said, there will never be a Newton of the blade of grass. Mm. Right? And of course, 19 years later, the Newton of the blade of grass was born in Shropshire, not far from here, to the Darwin family. Mm. And this idea that emergence is a fact about the levels of organization in nature that blocks the reduction is sheer bluff and dogma motivated largely by a desire to cultivate one's own garden without the, the interlopers from physics. And the last bastion of this attitude, of course, is consciousness. You describe something you call nice nihilism in your book. We're all pretty much one standard deviation from the norm, and the norm that has been selected for through a long process of evolution that started at least a million years ago is being cooperative, being altruistic, taking moral norms seriously as governing our actions, and having the emotions which drive those norms in such a way as to make cooperative human society possible. But, but the nihilist part is that that means that there is, it's meaningless to sort of say that some moral claims are true or false or right or wrong. I mean, there are reasons why we prefer certain things. So it doesn't mean we're going to stop locking people up or stop telling people off. But we shouldn't kid ourselves that there's anything behind that in terms of any kind of moral reality. It's just an evolved behaviour, right? Right. But the point is, there are two kind of ways of looking at the evolutionary explanation, aren't there? That what you might call a kind of a, a story of origins, uh, which simply explains how it all got started. But your kind of tactic is kind of the debunking view that in seeing this is where it all comes from, we are now left with nothing. We, we show that it's empty. Whereas other people would say, no, this shows how morality got started. But once it got started, once it got its foothold in human culture, you know, it takes on a life of its own. And we can then reflect on it and refine it. You, you don't buy into that at all. Well, no, because I think that if you're serious about science and about what uh, uh, science tells us, you don't have the resources to provide yourself with an independent justification of ethics. Uh, if you're a scientist, you, you hold, or if you hold that science explains everything and science is the only source of justification, then you've got to hold that either natural selection produced the moral core in us because it's the right one, or alternatively, that we think it's the right one because natural selection produced it in us. Okay? Now, if you think about the first alternative, that natural selection glommed onto the truth, 
Okay, you right away see that's a non-starter because natural selection produces a large number of mainly false beliefs. The false beliefs of folk psychology and folk physics and folk, folk biology, not to mention xenophobia, racism, patriarchy, and all of those other non-moral norms. Okay? If natural selection is not good at selecting for the truth, but only good at selecting what's convenient to believe, then the scientist has no basis in natural selection for endorsing the truth of morality. Under those circumstances, if we have no other source for justifying morality, we're pretty much committed to nihilism. Alex, your argument seems to sort of be powered by the idea that, you know, if you can't find a justification in the, in the science, which is ultimately the physics, then there isn't a justification. Everything else is just a story. And that goes back to the strong claim of scientism we had at the beginning, that the only real reasons for things are found there and everything else is a confabulation. But, I mean... I must admit, reading the book several times, I thought, you, you can't seriously be believing this because there are times when you are attributing causes, it seems, to things which are not at the level of physics. So here's an example I thought was the strongest one. You, you talk about we have these various illusions about ourselves. We have an illusion about morality, about free will and all these kind of things. But you said these illusions about the mind were for a long time absolutely crucial to our species' survival. So the reason we have these illusions is it confers... It's survival advantage to us, evolutionary advantage. But in order for it to confer as an advantage, these false beliefs we have must have causal efficacy in the world. They must lead to things happening in the world. That means you've got things happening in the world which are not explained at the level of atoms and physics. So explained at the level of belief. So, you know, on the one hand, you seem to say if, if it can't be explained in terms of the physics, it's not real... But on the other hand, here you're acknowledging there are things like beliefs which can have an effect on the world. And these beliefs are not a fact of physics. So no, that's what, I'm sorry, I, I have to get off that train. Um, our brains are 10 to the 10th neurons, each of which has up to 1,000 synapses. And uh, fundamentally, the cognitive processes that go on in our heads are physical processes. Yeah, but I understand that. But what he's saying is it, it is it is only the stuff going on in your brain. If you think it's got anything to do with what you think the thought is about, you're wrong. Because you say your thought, thoughts aren't about anything. But that the reason that seems to be so hard to believe is that the reason why uh, certain beliefs and things we say change our behaviour is precisely because of their about. I mean, there was a passage, I'd, I'd read it if you had a bit more time, where you talk about how therapy might work, for example. I will read it. Your therapist talks to you, the acoustical vibrations from your therapist's mouth to your ear starts a chain of neurons firing in the brain. Together with the circuits already set to fire in your brain, the result is some changes somewhere in your head. You may even come to have some new package of beliefs and desires, ones that make you happier than healthier. The only thing scientism insists on is that these new beliefs and new desires aren't thoughts about yourself, about your actions, or about anything else at all. The brain can't have thoughts about stuff. I can understand that in some sense it's obviously true that this is all about sound waves, brains, neurons, etc. But it's, it's not an accidental feature that those sound waves and everything actually are expressions in some form of a belief with a content. Do you see what I mean? If, 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 I, if you talk to a therapist, the content of what they're saying makes a difference. And that's meaning which is not found at the level of physics. But the meaning seems to be doing the work here. Oh, it's too late at night to start on this. <laughs> so there are four chapters of my book that are about neuroscience and its implication for 
not only scientific psychology, but for folk psychology. But I acknowledge that that is the most counterintuitive, most hard to understand part of contemporary science. So we can all worry our heads about what the meaning of superpositions are in quantum mechanics. But the real problem is reconciling what Nobel Prize winning neuroscience tells us about the nature of cognitive processes in the brain and our beliefs that when you listen to me, you are decoding the acoustical disturbances coming from my voice through the air to your eardrums into meaningful, contentful speech, which reflects things that I think about in my head and produce thoughts in your head about things. That picture of the way in which we interact and the way in which the mind operates is a picture that has come down to us, I argue, as the solution to the, the part of the solution to the design problem from hell that we had to solve very quickly and in a very dirty way and without knowing anything about neuroscience a million years ago on the African veil. And at this point, in the history of the development of science, we are reaching the place where we have to, where we begin to have the tools to enable us to work through that very deep illusion. I think it's interesting that uh, the the overarching issue that Alex is getting at here is a, is a is a fascinating and old one in philosophy, and that's what the relationship is between what you might call the scientific worldview or the scientific image and the worldview of common sense. You know, what sometimes called the manifest image, the way the world appears to you and seems to you, whatever your level of scientific training, if any. Alex's view is very much that um, the scientific image replaces the manifest image and indeed shows it to be a whole bundle of self-delusions. There is another line of view argument, though, which tries to say, no, maybe the task is to reconcile the scientific image with the manifest image. If you like being challenged, then do read this book. You might conclude at the end of it that the guy is completely mad and you disagree with him, but you'll be forced, you'll be forced to try and work out exactly why. Please thank both Samir and Alex. They've really been... You can keep up with what I'm doing, microphilosophical or otherwise, at microphilosophy.net or at the Microphilosophy Twitter feed. I hope to be back with the next podcast soon. So until then, if nothing prevents, goodbye.